You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. This week on the show, I'll be talking to the musician, songwriter, and as it turns out, fellow podcast host, Chris Milam. We have an unexpectedly deep and open conversation about his life and work and also some mental health issues, depression, history of substance abuse that we have in common. We'll get to that in just a moment. Before we do, I'd like to mention our next big event in Memphis, the Back to the Light Spring Turnout on Saturday, May 21st at Crosstown Brewing Company. There will be free live music from 3 to 8 p.m. Myself, the Subteens, Jeremy Scott, Loose Opinions, and the Downsprouts will all be there. All ages welcome. That's Saturday, May 21st at Crosstown Brewing. Hope to see you there. Okay, on to the guest. You can find his music at chrismilam.com. You can find season one of his podcast, The Mix, wherever you find podcasts. Here's me and Chris Milam. Anyway, hey, Chris, what's up? Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks so much for having me, JD. I've really gotten a kick out of listening to some recent episodes of the pod. I listened to the Mark Edgar Stewart one. That was a fun one. I wish we could have done it in person. Oh, where was he? He was... At home, I guess. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we that we did that one remote when I was still in Chicago. On his own plane of existence, I'm sure. Yes. Slash um, Goobertown, Arkansas. And I listened to the uh, the one that you do with Stephen. Uh, he was talking about the the Truckers book um, coming out. Um, Dusner, yeah. Yeah, Stephen Dusner. Um, yeah, man, you're good at this. These are excellent interviews. Oh, thank you. <laughs> the bar thank is you. high. <laughs> Well, first thing I want to say, I think we go back. We've played a few shows together. I remember us playing together at River Arts Fest. I remember us doing a thing together at the High Tone one time. Was that for Rock for Love that you recall? We did, yeah, Rock for Love at some point. And also I had like an EP come out just back in the Mesozoic era that I think you were on the bill that night, like for that release show. Um, and also I think Mark Edgar Stewart was, that was like one of the first shows Mark ever played, like as a solo singer songwriter thing. Interesting. Yeah. I remember you covered Hey Jealousy. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. I haven't done that one in a minute. But. I love the gin blossoms. Me too. Me too. Yeah. I think we've gone back and forth on Twitter about that. <laughs> well, I have to admit here at the beginning of our conversation that when we first met, I was a little skeptical uh-uh. and it's, it's, it's just because you're too damn handsome. <laughs> I'm trying my best to fix that, man. <laughs> do you hear that a lot? Um, I can't say that I do. Uh, if anything, it's more in the opposite direction. Like my, my friends and family uh, oh, are, surely are pretty not. quick to give me a hard time about anything imaginable. But um, no, no, I, I really haven't. <laughs> Well, how did you get started in music? Are you are you you're from Memphis originally? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm originally from Memphis. I, I say born and raised, but not quite. We moved here from Blacksburg, Virginia, when I was basically still a baby. You know, I think that counts. That basically counts. I mean, yeah. we claim anyone who moves here after like a month. Right, <laughs> right. I, I think I was uh, about four, and I don't really remember much about Virginia. Of course, I was also in a lot of Angel Dust at the time. But uh, oh wow, yeah, but. Uh, yeah, we, we came here when I was a youngin' and um, grew up here in Memphis. And then uh, Nashville for college, and a few years after, kind of did my time there, and New York City for a while, and then touring kind of ramped up enough that I wanted a cheaper home base than Manhattan. Uh, and so I came back to Memphis years and years and years ago, and pre-COVID, spent a lot of time on tour, but not so much in the last couple of years. How was Vanderbilt? <laughs> I was a displaced Belmont kid, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I didn't even know that Belmont existed uh, when I showed up in Nashville day one of college. I was like, whoops, there's a music school just down the road, and I'm surrounded by future bankers. Um, you know, it was... My brother Justin and I talk about our respective college college experiences. I think he can relate to this. Uh, I think at the time that I was there, the student body didn't deserve the faculty and resources. It was kind of a country club uh, with a bunch of doofuses in my experience. But um, some really good faculty members, good school, 
somewhere there if you could find it. But uh, yeah, I, I graduated as early as possible because I didn't really kind of fit in with the country club set and then started gigging open mics around Nashville, um, you know, six, seven nights a week and came to find out that um, I probably went to the wrong college and all the, all like Belmont was the feeder system. You know, everybody had gone to Belmont and I was uh, the black sheep. Of course, you are aware of the Memphis and Nashville beef. <laughs> yeah. Longstanding beef. So as someone, I, I lived in Murfreesboro for several years, which is outside of Nashville. Sure. So I have the perspective somewhat of, of both sides, although I'm you know, strong, very much pro-Memphis. Uh, what's your take on, on that? Do you have uh, as strong of anti-Nashville feelings as most Memphians? You know, I don't, uh, although it kind of changes on the day, like... When I left Nashville, I definitely was as anti as, as just about anybody uh, you'd ever want to meet. Um, I, I was really sick of it. It certainly wasn't like a musical fit for me. I, I didn't I didn't feel like it was uh, the right home base for me long term in the music world. And you know, I my my closest friends and. Now at this point, kind of musical compatriots are in Memphis, but like I, I, I really hit the Powerball growing up when it came to kind of friends and family. Um, I really lucked out in that respect. So like my people were here, and I never really felt that either on the personal or on the musical side in Nashville. So by the time I left, I was I was pretty sick of it. Now you know, eight, nine, ten years removed from that, I can go over for a meeting here or there, a show here or there, and enjoy it for a weekend maybe you know get my bachelorette party on you know just (laughs) put on my pink boots jd hit lower broad there's some great restaurants in nashville i will say fantastic there definitely are no i've it's definitely a love-hate thing i'm not as anti i think as some memphis boosters uh i gotta say in the last two years, I've also had a bit of a love-hate relationship with Memphis. So I think I think I've been living more in the gray area when it comes to all of these places recently. I can relate to a love-hate relationship with Memphis. <laughs> I, I'm on an upswing with Memphis now, but right. you know, five years ago when I left, not so much. Right. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So what sparked the move to Chicago? Well, what really spurred it is Jen, my wife Jennifer, got a job at the Art Institute. Oh wow. Okay. Which is the museum in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Okay. Uh, but so I, I was just kind of along for the ride being a good partner, supportive partner. I thought I would go, but I, I was pretty miserable here when I left, but then I discovered new depths of misery when I got there. (laughs) Was that just also known as February in Chicago? I don't hate the winters as much as most people over there. I actually really enjoy the snow and I enjoyed an excuse not to have to drive anywhere, but, and public, public transport in Chicago is good enough to sustain that. But I just, I never could get as much going. Like, I don't, I don't mean to sound weird, but like, it's much, so much easier for me in Memphis. I connections, friends, my band is here, right? you know, I have access to the space that we're sitting in. Right. It just made sense to come back. Right. So, um, was that kind of a collective decision between you and Jennifer then? Yeah. Is she sure. working I mean, remotely I, in Chicago? Or? She actually does still work for the Art Institute remotely okay. from our living room. She was working remotely for the last, you know, a couple of years anyway. Sure. So that makes sense. Yeah. So what were the where did the misery come from five years ago? And I've seen you've been posting online like recently about the move back. You seemed like very excited to to be back again. So what shifted you think? I mean, I didn't I underestimated how much I would miss my friends. Yeah. Yeah. And how important those relationships are. And when, I mean, that's not to say I don't want to say anything negative about the friends I made in Chicago, like they weren't as good of friends or something, but it just never felt the same for me there. And I really, really, really missed being here. Yeah. I hear that. I mean, nothing for me anyway, I'll speak for myself. Nothing feels as good as coming home and nothing feels as good as leaving home. There's always a push pull for me. There is a part of me that is, you know, nostalgic for Chicago. Yeah. And we're going back to see pavement in September. So. Oh, right on. Yeah. That's cool. I, the first two or three times I toured through Chicago was like dead of winter. I was like, you idiot. <laughs> you got to, you got to travel a little bit smarter. Um, but My then, first experience in Chicago was the same, but you can tell yours first. No, no, no. I mean, the shows have only ever been great. Like it was one of those places that 
for some unknown reason there, you know, I started out with like a nice little fan base and was able to build it out from there, even from the first show. But I was just, I was walking around like this in like a leather jacket in February in Chicago, like, uh, it was an uncommon ground, like in Wrigleyville. So like very close to the water over there. Yeah. And I'd never I played experienced the uncommon like ground that. in Rogers park or whatever. They have two now. Right. Right. So, yeah. Um, and I was hauling gear like back and forth in my car cause I had to park in, you know, fucking Kansas. And sure. by the time, like I finally got lo- loaded on uncommon ground, like just every barista and bartender, there like took pity on me, like threw me in front of the fireplace and like blankets like this poor idiot from the South isn't dressed appropriately. <laughs> Chicago will get you with those winners, but I, you know, I had boots and a, and a heavy coat, so I was fine. Yeah. Yeah. When I moved to New York, I got proper gear. We're, we're good now. <clears throat> Thankfully, you don't need it here. No. Uh, I asked how you got started, but I was really wanting to get into, I mean, how did you get into, what, like, did you have a family that was into music? Oh, or? gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I joke that I might have been adopted because, um, <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of reasons, actually, if you, if you spent time with my family, you'd be like, one of these is very much not like the other, which is to say that they're extremely smart and sweet people. Um but no, not a not a musical family in terms of playing instruments, ardent music fans. There was always music on in the house, and my parents had great taste. And music and just the arts collectively were always a big topic of conversation around sure. the and, dinner table. And by that, you mean enthusiastic music fans, not specifically of ardent music. <laughs> of ardent, all the above, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but my brother, my brother and I took the obligatory two years of piano lessons that didn't stick. I uh, wish they had. I only play piano well enough now to sound bad to people that know better, basically. Um, but no, from there, I, I, so in sixth grade, I looked around and all of a sudden everybody either got drums or guitar for Christmas or birthday that year. And I thought, well, nobody's playing bass. If I play bass, I'll be in every band. And I got a bass and I started learning how to play and everybody ditched their instruments and I was just a dude playing bass by himself in the bedroom. Which got old pretty quick for uh, 11-year-old Chris. And at that point, my brother did have an acoustic guitar that he kind of knew, like, the Lord's chords on. <laughs> and I, but he was four, he's four years older, but also, like, three times my size at that point. And if I went anywhere near it, he'd beat the shit out of me. So uh, I would watch him play, kind of memorize the shapes. He's a righty, I'm a lefty. When he left the house... I'd sneak into his room, pick up the guitar, flip it upside down, and that's kind of how I taught myself to play guitar, guitar. And uh, never really looked back, yeah. What kind of stuff were you listening to and emulating? <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that was like kind of 96X era, um, and I know that you uh, spoke to the DJ recently. Um, so, you know, Justin's musical taste around that time had diverged from mine. Uh, I was I was pretty into the green days of the world around then I was pretty into, I was, I was, I was kind of late to the Nirvana records. Like I wasn't listening to them when they came out, but around the time I was picking up a guitar, super into Nirvana, but I mean also like Oasis, Everclear, just like anything that was on 96 X that sounded at all accessible. I was like, let me learn how to play that. Let me listen to that for a second. Um, Weezer, definitely. And when did you start, playing out did you do high school bands and I stuff did high like school that? bands yeah I mean it was it was basically um church band uh that was the only thing I got out of it um was that I, I met a handful of dudes that um we just started a garage band you know outside of church and kind of never really went back to church after that um did some Pearl Jam covers we did some Red Hot Chili Peppers covers I I just I played bass in that band actually I did not play guitar and um but once I got to college it was kind of as much as possible I was just constantly had a guitar in my hand and was starting to song right at that point so at what point did you decide you're going to be Chris Milam the singer songwriter solo artist versus like guy in bands oh yeah that's a great question I don't hmm I think I think daring to sing was still a, a bridge too far for me when I was in high school. I I would sing 
and play stuff in my bedroom, but I didn't like myself as a musician or a singer at that point very much. And so I, I wouldn't have dared to really do that out in front of a crowd, but I was, I was always writing, um, by then certainly songs. Uh, but I mean, growing up, that was kind of my artistic outlet. I would write poetry. I would write little stories or whatever. Anytime there was one assignment in class that the teacher gave, I'd do like 12 extra, you know, I, that was just kind of my passion. So I think songwriting was really the point of entry for eventually like going, okay, I, I guess I can le- I can explore the singer side of this too. <laughs> um, and just immersion therapy. I mean, like when I was still finishing up college, I was, like I said, I was doing open mics around Nashville and, you know, open mics in Nashville are like a, a real feeder system. That's where like a lot of kind of established songwriters are still like working out new stuff. It's its own like little community, but I didn't know any of those people. So for me, it was like a dark bar full of anonymous faces and I could just crash and burn if I needed to. Um, and so once I started kind of booking my own proper, you know, shows, shows, uh, I felt like I'd gotten at least some reps under my belt and wasn't too, too embarrassing. <laughs> Although in retrospect, I was still very much embarrassing. <clears throat> On stage, are you more comfortable by yourself, or do you still prefer playing with a band? Yeah. I think if you'd asked me that question for the bulk of my career thus far, I would have said solo. Um, Not anymore. I I really miss playing with as many people as possible. I know your last couple of records are full band. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, it was interesting the way that we ended up having to kind of tour kids these days. Because, I mean, that was that was a big, that was ultimately a pretty big production. Uh, I did some full band shows, plenty actually, um, for that album cycle. And then I did a lot of touring with uh, Ellen Roten, Krista's sister, just the two of us. She was on cello. And we just kind of did like a, a duo thing. And I did some solo shows too. Um, I, I had kind of a mixed bag booked for Meanwhile, uh, which came out April 2020. So, you know a month into the pandemic and I had to scrap that whole album cycles worth of planning and touring and promotion and everything. So I never, I don't actually have an answer for how I, I would have done this. <laughs> for that record. Yeah. I know you recorded it with Toby, right? Toby vest. Yeah. Toby, uh, produced both. Um, yeah. At high low recording. I, I went to listen to some of it this morning on Spotify and obviously it wasn't there and we can get into that <laughs> sure. uh, later, but uh, I do remember when you, I think it was when you guys were working on it, Toby, and this is before me and Toby had our falling out or whatever, uh, playing, uh, some stuff for me and really, really liking it. Yeah. Well, and it seemed like quite a different sound for you than kids these days. It is. Yeah. Um, intentionally. So at least that's what we were aiming for. Uh, kids these days we, we worked on for a year really end to end, uh, you know, part of that was coming back and forth to it when budget allowed. And part of it was I I was really painstaking in terms of the detail that I wanted um, for that album. And the idea with Meanwhile was that it would be kind of the other end of the spectrum in terms of creative process. Here were some songs that I thought fit together thematically and kind of spoke to each other. Sure. But uh, instead, we were just going to basically make it in a week. Um, and then instead of me coming in and doing that really obnoxious thing where I hum a part to a strings player and <laughs> ask them to play the thing that I have in mind for the arrangement, um, it's just like, okay, Ellen, what are you hearing? And, you know, just a lot of kind of second takes on that record, a lot of, you know, just kind of live recording. And it's like just a snapshot of a moment. Um, and it is a different arrangement too from kids these days uh, a little bit of a warmer sound but also a little bit more stripped down as well that album is only a digital release at present presently yeah are yeah. you planning to put it out on cd or vinyl or yeah i would love to i mean that was all kind of in the works when i shut down 2020 um so yeah uh Budget allowing, fingers crossed, I'd, I would very much love to be able to sell physical copies of that at future shows. I read an interview you did with the Memphis Flyer, and you said that the album was born out of uh, depression and loss. Sure. Do you care to get into that a little bit? Was it... Yeah, yeah. I mean, was it a bad breakup? Was there more than that to it? 
Yeah. Um, and by the way, I'm happy to answer whatever uh, you want to ask me. I'm walking around fuckless these days. Um, <laughs> I, Crap, now I have to put that explicit thing on there. Oh, no. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of different types of loss went into that album. So, in right when I was finishing up the album cycle for kids these days, I did um, have a pretty bad breakup um, that was, I would say, hit me harder than any one that had come before or since. And um, kind of right as I was going through that, my dad got diagnosed with cancer, which kind of kick-started a two, two-and-a-half-year-long um, process with with that, that um, he eventually passed September 2019. Um, we also had some other loss in the family that um, I might be able to speak to off mic. It's not really my story to share. But, uh, yeah, so in, in the span of a couple years' time, um, it felt like a lot of pillars of my life up to that point were gone. And we started pre-production actually like that fall of 2019, like as that shit was hitting the fan, so to speak, and got in the studio December 2019. I actually still was was writing a little bit um, of the songs uh, as we were getting into the studio. So, I mean, that, that album was very much made in that moment. And, you know, just by kind of weird coincidence, a lot of the people who worked on it had experienced loss of a parent. Uh, you know, in recently, in, in recent years, um, Steve Salvage, uh, Rick Staff, uh, um, Toby had lost his mom. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think there was like a lot of, I think people just connected to the songs uh, and from their own perspective. Uh, and I think that you can kind of hear that commiseration a little bit in the performances. I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question. How how dark did it get for you? Yeah, dark. Um, <laughs> I mean, I never want a song to be just about one thing, but if there's a song called Whiskey in the Morning, you're certainly welcome to hear that literally and then hopefully extrapolate from there. Um, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was the first time in my life that... It wasn't the first time in my life that I'd um, had had kind of extended bouts of depression and even suicidal ideation. Um, I, I kind of dealt with that on and off since I was a teenager. Um, that was the first time in my life I did not recognize my relationship to substances and frankly scared myself. Um, you know, that it got away from me, so to speak for like nine months, a year or so. Um, there was plenty of drowning of the sorrows, uh, which, you know, it's hard. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to go through that much loss and enter into that feeling like you don't have tools in the toolbox. Now I do, but at the time it, sometimes it was just strictly a coping mechanism. You know, how do I get to the end of this day? You know, how did you find those tools? Uh, therapy. Yeah. Um, therapy. I also, for the first time ever had like a proper, you know, psych psychiatric consultation, which put me on that experimental timeline of finding the right kind of medication balance and everything. So diet, exercise, better sleep, um, and medicine and therapy. <laughs> yeah. And also just discipline, kind of learning lessons and sticking with them, which is very unsexy and just kind of a daily grind of hard work, but then all of a sudden you turn around a year or two later and go, all right, I'm, I am in a better place. I can say that for sure that where I am right now is not where I was this time in 2020, you know, uh, if you don't mind me asking, where are you with, uh, the sauce? Are you moderating? Are you off of it? Are you, what are you, what are you doing? Moderating? Yeah. Yeah. And, and also getting started on, um, uh, medicine for, you know, my mental health issues that I've had forever and that had been undiagnosed. That was a big light bulb moment too. That kind of, I would like to say permanently altered my relationship to other drugs too. Um, so now I, I feel like it, I'm much more myself, like my relationship to, for example, alcohol 
is back to what it was, you know, really my entire adult life up until 2019, which is to say it's a social thing, it's a celebratory thing or whatever. Um, it's something that is light as opposed to incredibly heavy and isolated and yeah. sparking even more depression, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that was part of the Chicago experience that was so hard for me was that I felt so isolated. Right. I felt you know, so far away from all my friends, my band, my family. I mean, I was already a problematic drinker at that point. I was already still not in therapy, still not right. dealing with a lot of heavy shit. But then the isolation on, in Chicago just pushed me over the edge. I mean, I, I was, I was drinking heroic amounts. Of, right. uh, it's, ugh, it makes me kind of sick just to think about it. So wh when exactly did you move up there? October of 2017. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So, and where are you at now with that? Oh, I'm, I'm three years alcohol free. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Well, congratulations. That's well, thank you. That is a big deal. They say like it's something of a it's different for everybody. But like my best friend since I was four years old, uh, my buddy Jay is now seven years sober, I think. And he said once he kind of got through two, he felt that it was starting to get easier. <laughs> Actually, once I got through the first week or so, I knew that I was pretty much done. Wow. Forever. But I hit such a low place with it to where like I was not just like spiritually exhausted, but like my body couldn't take it anymore. Sure. I mean, I couldn't like, I couldn't really eat food yeah. anymore. Wow. So, and that's not sustainable. No, no. <laughs> I, I, w did you ever like see a doctor during that time? Like just for a physical and they're like, uh, what's, what's no, going on here? Not yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but I, I did finally start seeing a therapist and then like I saw, I saw my, still my current therapist. Mm. I saw her. And then a week later I was like, I can either like get sober now and like face this therapeutic process, honestly, or I can just bullshit my way through this. Like I've done every, every other thing. Right. Right. So that was, that was it for me. I mean, that takes a lot of strength. That takes a lot of strength, man. I'm, I hope that you're proud of yourself on a daily basis. I am. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a situation where just kind of chronologically, you know, we dad died September 2019, and then did y'all have a good relationship? Yeah, we were close. I mean, our, our whole family. I really lucked out when it when it comes to kind of my immediate support system, um, and so. It, Really, Dad died, kind of got through the holidays and the pandemic hit. So it it was a lot of, you know, I was already kind of reeling. And I'm the type of person, I don't know if you're like this too, where um, in the moment, like if something really, really cataclysmic happens and everybody's kind of freaking out, I'm the motherfucker like cleaning the kitchen and taking out the garbage and everything and like <laughs> making sure like laundry's done and everything. And then when I'm by myself maybe a day later, maybe a week later, or maybe a couple months later, all of a sudden it'll just overwhelm me. And so I was already a little bit on in shock from the fall and on like satellite delay in terms of processing my shit. And then, um, and then the pandemic happened and everybody's stuck at home and everybody's a little bit faced with themselves and filled with existential dread. And also there were other things to worry about in 2020, uh, even outside of the global pandemic. And yeah, I was just alone and sad and didn't really know. And also had basically was was faced with the prospect of canceling this album cycle. And it's like, well, I was going to stay busy all these other ways and process these emotions while singing these songs on tour and hopefully connecting with people through the music. And that'll be my outlet as it's always been. Instead, I was just a sad motherfucker alone at home. And it's like, so what's the harm in, you know, calling noon five o'clock somewhere. Um, and that just, like you said, at a certain point, you're just exhausted. You know, it's just not sustainable. <laughs> yeah. It, it got to the point where I was having to, you know, do a couple of shots before I would go into work or else I would have the shakes too bad Wow. or else I'd be like, you know, or I'd be sick if I didn't. Right. You know, right. And that's that, that was the point to where 
it, it was just exhausting. And that, that period of time probably went on longer than it could have, or, or I should say it should have. Mm-hmm. But eventually, I, basically it came down to I, I, had, I got a therapist that I felt I couldn't bullshit. Right, right. Like I'd had therapists in the past and I was pretty, uh, you know, I felt like I was smarter than them and I was able to bullshit them. Yeah. But with my current one, that, that's not the case. That's so important. Yeah. Not not just getting therapy to kind of start the process, but really finding the right therapist long term. Um, it's crucial. Yeah. I I bounced around. I I, ex- I dated <laughs> in the therapy world for a little while, but I, I found the right fit eventually. just heard in the blood by my guest chris milam let's get back to our conversation so what are you working on now are you doing a new album are you waiting to hopefully tour on this album that came out a couple of years ago all the above yeah um so the plan right now is i'm i'm making a new album this year that'll come out in 2023 uh again with toby um at high low and while I'm kind of in that album making process, I'm finally, finally, I held off, I held off 
for two years plus, but I'm booking shows again. Um, so I'll do, I'll do a couple of things close to home, but mostly road work, um, here and there throughout the rest of the year. Where do you tour mostly like whole United States? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really at its height, like through the kids these days cycle. So like up through kind of 2017, 18, um, Every, all across the U.S. and I, I did some U.K. shows too. Um, uh, did like a collaboration with some artists in Liverpool, and they came here and did some stuff, and we went over there and did some stuff. Oh, that's cool! How did that happen? So that was through Music Export Memphis, um, Elizabeth K. Wine's uh, sure. nonprofit, and they do just amazing kind of boots on the ground uh, work for Memphis artists, and they. Um, I don't. You'd have to ask her kind of where the original idea came from, uh, apart from just some obvious musical and historical connections between Liverpool and Memphis. Um, but yeah, basically her nonprofit uh, kind of put together this collaboration that was over the course of August 2017. There were two Memphis artists with two Memphis mentors so that was me and lenita smith were selected um by a panel that elizabeth did not vote on (laughs) she's very quick to point out she's like i wouldn't have voted for it thanks very much got through anyway um but uh lenita smith and i lenita's from here but based out of la she's an amazing songwriter and then um william bell and susan marshall were the two kind of sherpas uh on on the memphis side in that process um which i could talk about the two of them all day, and I mean, that was, of course, my introduction to Mr. Bell, and he is he hung the moon as far as I'm concerned. I absolutely love that man. Um, I know Susan well, and I love her to death. Yeah. Um, yeah what, what was it like to be, just hang out with William Bell? I mean, the first, not the first day I met him, the second day I met him, um, it was just like on our itinerary itinerary that they handed out and it just said, you know, 1 PM co-write W bell C Milam. And it's like, <laughs> that's how I'm spending my afternoon. I'm, I'm writing a song with William Bell. Um, and we've shared, you know, a quick hello, uh, before that. And I mean, I'd, I've heard his voice since I was a child. My parents are big fans. My mom especially was very much like kind of on the stacks and Motown side of things and kind of sixties R and B dad was a little bit more on like the folk and country end of things and singer songwriters. Um, it was surreal. I mean, it was absolutely surreal, but he's, he's such an extraordinary person that he immediately kind of takes the air out of the balloon. He's so down to earth. He's so humble. He's so generous with like kind of his time and his energy that, I mean, that to this day, that's the easiest co-write I've ever had in my life was, was that afternoon with him. Um, and did you record a song together that he... Did he sing on it? He, <laughs> uh, we did not. Um, oh, to my knowledge, nothing from that collaboration is made on a record yet. But we did. Uh, the Memphis end of the collaboration finished with like this big concert in Ardent Studio A um, that like fifty Memphis music fans were able to attend, and we performed the stuff that we had worked on to that point. And so he sang the the one that we wrote together with me, and then we did like a a big group song that the entire group had written together and other people had co-written with each other and so on and so on. And then at the end of the month, we did the same thing in Liverpool and had twice as much material. And that was at the big Philharmonic in Liverpool and an amazing crowd. But, um, yeah, I, I cannot say enough good things about William Bob desperately want to be him when I grow up. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> something else. He's, he's just, he's still so incredibly talented as a songwriter. I mean, he's just razor, razor sharp. His voice has never sounded better. In fact, I asked him when we were, we were wandering through the cemetery where Eleanor Rigby's headstone is in Liverpool. And, uh, I said, I've got to ask you, how is your, how does your voice sound this good still? And <laughs> two words, good cognac. It's like <laughs> noted. <laughs> Like looked over his shoulder for the Hennessy billboard. Like, is this sponsored? That's hilarious. (laughs) I remember at one point you were writing for the vinyl district. Isn't that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Ages ago. Yeah. Do you still have any aspirations for writing or music journalism or anything like that? No, no. I just talk shit about other artists uh, (laughs) off mics. Hell, I'll do it on mic. I don't care. Um, I remember an interview you did with Corey Brandon being fun. 
Yeah, so in 2019, in fact, I I did a one season of a podcast that is since dormant, like a lot of things since 2020 for me in my life that we hope to pick back up later this year as well. Um, but the premise for that was I invite successful artists. Um, oh, dang, I can't be on it then. <laughs> not at all. Uh, on for like a, a roughly hour-long conversation, but the premise is... Uh, I, I simply ask them one question, what songs mean the most to you? And it's called The Mix. And so they they kind of take me through like their their mixtape, basically. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's very similar, and I'm not accusing anyone of anything whatsoever on either side. But for a while, my buddy Jack Alberson, whose t-shirt yeah. I'm wearing now, had his own podcast called The Jack Alberson Song Story. And it was kind of similar. Oh, right on, yeah. Yeah, it started out about, I think it started being about other people's favorite songs, but then it turned out to being uh, into being songs that they wrote and then it petered out. Gotcha. Yeah. As, as, as some podcasts do. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I liked about kind of the phrasing for the mix, what songs mean the most to you, we did 12 episodes in, in season one. Uh, Corey was one, William Bell was one. Um, and, and the list goes on, but, uh, yeah, that was that was during my dark period in Chicago, <laughs> so that's that's why I missed that. But um, but people interpret that what means the most to you in different ways. So for some people, you know, they kind of shared like very personal stories about their connection to somebody's song. You know, um, for example, William Bell um, shared a story about the first time he met Sam Cooke, and he, you know, hit one of his songs was Sam Cooke's "Change Is Gonna Come," but he he told the story about the first time he met him and went out to dinner with him and kind of was brought under Sam Cooke's wing as like a little bit of an apprentice. Um, oh, wow. Is this still out there? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. I'll, go it's, listen, it's, I'll, I'll absolutely listen to that. It's I, everywhere, yeah. I love Sam Cooke stories. Um, yeah, he, he talks a lot about Sam Cooke. Um, but, you know, some people, like I Make Mad Beats, um, would talk about a Jay Dilla track and just like from a production side, like what he learned and like kind of what sparked something like more in like the technical realm for um, his future career as a producer um so yeah people take that question a lot of different directions so every every episode is many and varied and you're planning on getting this going again yeah yeah that's the plan i mean i, I like having the conversations in person as we have so i didn't really want to do the the zoom thing once uh the pandemic started and also i, I kind of had some some national like not necessarily strictly memphis artists lined up for season two i was going to catch them as they toured through and that's really only starting to be the case now. So it's, it's on the horizon, we think. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if we should have this conversation like uh, live on tape, but <laughs> I'd, I'd carry that on the network if you wanted to. Yeah. I mean, the, the OAM network, Gil, producer Gil, shout out Gil, whom I love, uh, is, it's now defunct. Um, they got their uh, studio taken over uh, in Crosstown, and Gil now lives in Florida. So I've talked to him about this off mic. I'm like, buddy, <laughs> any producers you'd recommend? He's like, oh, I'm out of the game. Like, okay. But yeah, we'll talk. We yeah, can talk. I know some folks <laughs> for sure. Well, yeah. anything else we need to dig into, Chris? Man, um, you know, nothing necessarily on my radar. Uh, I, I do want to hear about. I actually do want to hear a little bit about why you were miserable when you left Memphis. Not playing music, I underestimated how hard it would be to get a band back together. Even though I did find some guys in Chicago that we put, we played a few shows together and they ended up playing on my new record, which yeah. is still stuck in the pressing queue in Czechoslovakia as wow. we speak. I have no, I still have no idea when I'm ever going to see those records that I ordered like last spring. But uh, ugh, setting that aside, uh, I mean, I don't know. It's the, on the surface, it sounds like I shouldn't have been as miserable as I like really was. But yeah. it's really hard to, you know, gosh, Chicago. It's it's hard to just like hang out with somebody. I see. Like you know, it's like we set this up pretty you know informally. Like, hey, you want to come over tomorrow? Let's do that. Right. You can't do those sorts of things in Chicago. You got to plan shit you know, weeks, months in advance with somebody and, you know, and all of that scheduling a band practice, forget about it, you right. know, with four people, it was just, it just got to, it, it was too hard, too hard to, to book shows, you know, uh, 
and there's everything is everything was different in Chicago in ways that I didn't expect. And uh, pretty quickly I realized I miss my friends. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that totally makes sense. You, you also kind of referenced when you left Memphis feeling disenchanted with Memphis. Yeah. Well, I mean, that comes down to, I mean, I was bummed out because I didn't get the Memphis flyer at music editor job a, a few different times. Oh, wow. Uh, the music writing career wasn't going where I'd hoped and the music stuff, my last solo album. I mean, I was in a pretty dark place when it came out, so I didn't do as good a job promoting it as I did the first one. So I see naturally it didn't do as well. Right. Um, I don't know. I was disillusioned with music. I was taking a lot of stuff for granted and, you know, drinking too much, Sure. which is just, fuel on a fire right right well i um i did want to mention uh on mike that you were one of the first people to give really really to write really really sweet things about kids these days oh um i actually remember reading your review coming back from south by southwest which is like still a couple of weeks before the album even came out and you'd kind of done an advanced review of it and uh that's always stuck with me, man. You're not only a great interviewer and a great musician and a great artist in your own respect, but you're a really keen listener, which, as you know, means a lot. <laughs> well, thank you. You're very nice to say that. And I'm relieved that I that someone remembers something I wrote fondly because I, I felt at the end of my music writing career that it was doing more harm to my to me than it was helping. Huh. OK. Um, because people are weird when you write stuff. If you get something wrong or if you portray something a way that they didn't want you to, then I mean, I got a lot of negative feedback for stuff that I wrote, or maybe that's just the parts that I remembered, you know, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, maybe I don't remember all the positive feedback and that's, that's probably true, but there was one situation I'll, I'll get into it. Uh, cause we, we mentioned <laughs> our, I mentioned earlier having a beef with Toby. This was really where I fell the moment I fell out of love with being a journalist. Uh, Toby was moving the studio from Cleveland over to the Easley mm-hmm. space. And I had sent him a bunch of interview questions. I was going to write another article about the studio, about them moving to, you know, to help them out, right. honestly. But he took the questions that I wrote that I had sent him, he took some of them the wrong way or something. Like he felt that I was asking too personal questions. And I was just like, so how did this business deal come about? How'd you get, you know, involved with this guy who owns easily now? Right. But he took it, he took it the wrong way. Like I was trying to expose his business deals and felt, I don't know. He accused me of like, you know, I think like abusing the trust of their, of our friendship and all this kind of weird stuff. And, it really like it really hurt me for one yeah. and it's that situation is still unresolved i haven't spoken to toby since our last phone conversation about this about that incident which was what 4 years ago i mean more than that yeah, yeah. you know and i used to i really loved toby yeah um so it makes me sad to kind of relive it but that was just kind of the end for i was like i just can't keep doing this like sure. it doesn't pay enough yeah. It doesn't pay enough to ruin my friendships and ruin my reputation as an artist. Cause when you walk, when people think of you as a journalist first and you walk in the room, everybody tightens up. Right. Cause they don't want you, you know, <sighs> repeating some shit on memphisflyer.com. That's not who I want to be. Right. And that's, that's not who I want to be. And this is a downside of Memphis being, um, you know, like, Aside from specifically what happened with with you and Toby, I mean, that's a that's a tension and frustration I feel all the time when I'm in Memphis. Is that it can feel very small ultimately and quite provincial ultimately, and I I feel like folks that are really only in the scene all day every day, three sixty five, um, you know that that can kind of the world can start to look like a fun house mirror a little bit. Um, and yeah, people's perspectives get strange if they're just kind of like stuck in one spot. Um, I, I love Memphis to death, but you know, last couple of years I felt that to death a little bit more, (laughs) frankly, I desperately have to get out sometimes, uh, to stay sane. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that 
if I hadn't gotten out when I did, I mean, certainly the therapist that helped save my life is a Chicago therapist. Right. So I have a lot of gratitude for Chicago and that experience uh, just because of that. Sure. Sure. Gosh, I really hope that you can find some time to talk to Toby at some point. That's, um, well, maybe he'll hear this or, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe, uh, when you go record your next album with him, you'll be like, Hey man, maybe give JD a call. I, I gotta say as much as I've, <laughs> as much as Memphis has always just meant to me as like kind of a home. Cause I, I wonder if he's still like, if he's still mad about it or he probably doesn't even think about it. He probably doesn't even realize that I See, still the, have lingering ill or, you know, that I still feel like have hurt feelings about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I know Toby to be such a. Um, he's always been such a, like kind of a kind hearted, but also very circumspect. Toby was the first person in the music world, period, Memphis, Nashville, New York, period, that I felt like I spoke the same language as when it come, when it came to music. Um, really the, the day that I met Toby and started talking about making kids these days changed my career in a sense. Um, after that I felt, wow. Maybe I'm not quite so crazy. Maybe the way I approach songwriting and the way I want to make an album isn't uh, isn't crazy. Um, maybe this this guy kind of understands where I'm coming from, and he's he's been a pivotal figure for me on Kids These Days. Meanwhile, and then we're doing the third together uh, later this year. Maybe you could come by, take a listen. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. Maybe I need to have him over and we can do like the full Mark Marin experience and <laughs> hash it out on the podcast. Ask him who his guys are. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that I've completely uh, hijacked the conversation and made it about me, I guess we can close up shop. Oh, man, that is absolutely my pleasure. It's one of my favorite things to do is just ask a bunch of questions and turn the tables. Well, if, if you do get that podcast up and running again, let's talk. Absolutely, man. We'll be talking either either way. I'm really happy that you're back in town and gigging again, and I hope to see you soon. Yeah. Thanks, J.D. Thank you. That's the show. Thank you to Chris Milam. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening. For music, news, episode archives, and other fine podcasts, visit backtothelight.net. And until next time, take care, y'all. Part of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.